if you have your copy of Psalm 76, the uh, sheet that we've been using recently, if you'd pull that out. We're going to read that psalm again. We'll talk about it a little bit more before we jump into another psalm, Psalm 30. If you don't have it, uh, what we'll do is we'll recite, we'll read the ESV. And so if you just have an ESV, you can read that instead. All right, Psalm 76. Hello? Let's read. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war, Selah. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to Jehovah your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. So we've spent a couple weeks on this psalm. In this psalm, God is depicted as a fighter. All right, one who fights on behalf of his people, um, and in a subsection of it, at least, he's he's talked about as a as a uh, predator. All right, as the enemies of God come against the people of God, God, as the predator, will ultimately win and destroy them, and they become his prey. I want to pause a little bit, talk a little bit more about the psalm, something you might find out in the world, um, and then we'll go on to Psalm 30. First review. Okay. Your translation of this of the psalm that you're using, all right? Let's say it's the ESV. It really won't matter in most cases, all right? ESV, KJV in this case would, would be um, exactly the same. What is that based off of, the translation? Yeah. It'll be um, the best thing to talk about is it's, it's the Masoretic text, all right. So we're talking about the Old Testament, all right. And so the Masoretic text. What is the Masoretic text? Anybody know? Anybody know what Masoret is? Yeah. The original Hebrew text. Right? So the Masoretic text is a Hebrew text, all right. So Hebrew. Now it comes from like the ninth-ish century AD. Okay. Masoretic, Masore, Masoretic just means um, this was like a group of Jewish scribes. Okay, so our English translations these days are based on primarily on this particular text. All right. Now this is not exactly we don't have the originals. Right. This is actually quite a bit later than the originals. Um, okay. 
Where am I going with this? Well, well, you'll see in just a minute. All right. So, what's our next oldest Hebrew text that we know of from here? It's a group of Hebrew texts that were discovered last century. Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls, right. So, the Dead Sea Scrolls, all right, these are scrolls found by the Dead Sea, thus called the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are in Hebrew and Aramaic, primarily. Okay, and so now, now when they created the KGV, they did not know about these. They were sitting in a cave, right? And nobody had found them. When you get something like the ESV, they are primarily going to be dependent on this, but they will also look to this for things. And this is very much like this, but not exactly like this. And so you can look at this and go, all right, here's some perhaps corrections we can make. And so this is from like the second century BC, all right? So this is rolling back the clock like 1,100 years of Hebrew text. Now, the book of Psalms, uh, when was it written? Who wrote it? Bible, Bible quiz from the other night. A lot of people wrote the book of Psalms, all right? Um, when was it probably first? Who are the, who are the first authors? Moses. Moses. Now, there's, there's a psalm or two attributed to Moses. Now, often they're called the Psalms of David, which is not technically correct, even though a lot of the Psalms are written by David. Do they all come from David's time period and earlier? No. There's some Psalms that are post-exilic or in the exile. And so you've got, a, there's a Psalm about singing about being in Babylon, all right? That means you're going to be in the 6th century B.C. And so you've got the Psalms that are going to go back to, you know, 5th century B.C. Okay. Now, we don't, we don't have the original copy of the Psalms. That would be sure would be nice, right? Okay. So this is how we get our, our Old Testament, all right? People... Uh, learn Hebrew and study primarily the Masoretic text, but also Dead Sea Scrolls, which have lots of useful Hebrew stuff in it. All right. That's primarily where we get our Hebrew Old Testaments from. Now, if you were to talk about Psalm 76 specifically with an Eastern Orthodox person or some Catholics, all right, um, if you were to read this with them and do a Bible study with them, you'd have a little bit of a difference. If you look in, let's see, uh, this would be in... Du, du, du. We don't have the New Jerusalem translation. You don't have the New Jerusalem translation? Why not? Uh, verse 4, all right? Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. If, for example, you were to look up Augustine's commentary on the Psalms, Augustine loved the Psalms. Absolutely quotes and alludes to Psalms constantly. Um, he is not going to see this right here. He's not going to see glorious are you more majestic than the mountains full of prey. He is going to see more majestic than the eternal mountains. Okay? So if we have mountains of prey, all right, then you're probably thinking that this comes from the Hebrew Masoretic text. All right? And if you're thinking that, you are correct. It has actually come from the Masoretic text. If he has something different, all right, so if you've got Augustine, all right, before the, before the Masoretes were writing, all right, but after then, what text is he using? Anybody know? Okay. You're tempted to say the Septuagint. 
What language is Septuagint written in? Greek. Greek. All right. Um, Augustine wrote in Latin. Okay, so what happened was, is you had out of the Septuagint, which of course is based on Hebrew, you had a group of translations called the Old Latin. Okay? And so these are just Latin-speaking Christians in the West. They're like, we need a copy of the Psalms in Latin because most people can't read Greek. So, because they were in the West, not in the East. And so they, you've got a bunch of unofficial translations made, and those are collectively called the Old Latin, and that's exactly what Augustine uses. Yes? Is that the same as the Latin Vulgate? It is not. We'll get there in a second. But good question. And so the Old Latin was based off of the Septuagint. So whoever did the Old, the old Latin, they didn't really know Hebrew. And so they translated the Septuagint. So this is ultimately why, the roots of why, when you talk to an Eastern Orthodox, because their Old Testament is based off of the Septuagint, because it's Greek, and they're Greek. <laughs> and ultimately Catholic as well, because the early translations were based off of the Septuagint. Why? You will, in a lot of their material, you will find a different text here in Psalm 76 and in other places as well. So, the Vulgate, where did that come in? Well, who, who was the one who supposedly translated the Vulgate? Anybody know his name? He was a contemporary of Augustine. He was Jerome. Now, he did certainly do part of it. Um, very important dude. Now, Jerome is weird in that he was a Latin-speaking guy, but he learned Hebrew. Right? He was a super scholar. And so... You've got the Vulgate, which is basically comes out of the Old Latin, okay? At least for the Psalms, all right? And so the Vulgate also has that. However, because Jerome was a boss in New Hebrew, he was not actually happy with that. He actually made a separate translation of the Psalms from Hebrew. And what's fascinating about that, uh, you can call this the, I don't know, Latin Hebrew, all right? What's fascinating about that is he doesn't have eternal mountains there. He has mountains of captivity. What goes, what gets captive? Pray. All right. So he's reading a Hebrew text that is going back to here. All right. Now, all of this, that's a good question. Whatever he had available to him in the East, because he moved to the East and got better at Greek and, and Hebrew over there. Certainly not the Dead Sea Scrolls. At that point, they were in caves, still, unfound, right? Which is why, you know, they're, it's why they lasted this long. It's because nobody found them until way over here. Okay, so all that's to say, whenever you're dealing with Eastern Orthodox or Catholic folks, you will sometimes have different texts, and this is ultimately why. And if you were to read a commentary by St. Augustine, which you should totally do. Augustine's cool. Um, Protestants and Catholics, and even Eastern Orthodox, they all like Augustine. Um, you'll find some differences. And this will be one of those places where you'll find a difference. And that's ultimately why. When you get to the Reformation, I checked Calvin, I checked Luther, they are definitely not using this. They are definitely using a... Hebrew text, or at least something that was translated from the Hebrew. Since Jerome translated um, 
from the Hebrew, a version that didn't become a part of the Vulgate. They could have been using it. Chances are they were actually using Hebrew. And so by the time you get to the Reformation, you don't have eternal mountains. They don't read it that way. Somewhere in the Middle Ages. All right, somewhere in the Middle Ages, maybe as early as Jerome, they figured this out. And eventually, ultimately, mountains full of prey wins as your translation. Just to review, I, you know, Bible history. You need to think about where your Bibles come from, all right? And what's interesting about this, one reason why um, Jerome's translation from the Hebrew and, uh, didn't win is because it was too different from what they were used to. The Psalms were extremely popular in the church, all right? It would have weirded some people out, which is not all that different than from the, some of the arguments you're going to get or you got early when different translations other than the King James started coming out, people are like, no, this is too different. We can't handle this. All right, we don't want to do this. So it took a long time for the King James Version in the English-speaking world to get unseated. It's the same exact thing in the Latin world in terms of the Catholics. Where are they today? Well, about 50 years ago, uh, they created a new Vulgate, which they started introducing into Catholic practice. And the New Vulgate, in this particular case, has the more up-to-date translation, just like Jerome's Hebrew one, as a matter of fact. So they eventually noticed it. It's the same thing going on. People like their translations, all right? And if there's a common one, just culturally, people don't want to move away from those things. Uh, that's very different than what we're doing today, where we are looking at multiple translations and using them as a Bible study tool. So, whenever we look at Psalm 30 today, where is it coming from? It's primarily coming from here and from here. Occasionally, we'll find very important Old Testament readings that are from the Septuagint and aren't in the Hebrew, but not today. Any questions about that before we talk about Psalm 30? Go look this up. It's very fascinating if you're into history. All right, let's look at Psalm 30. Psalm 30 was not chosen at random. Not even in the sense of the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Uh, this will be our reading next Lord's Day in the opening, which is why I chose Psalm 30. So that will mean, uh, because there's no way we'll get through all of this today, that means we're preparing for the next reading next Lord's Day, and then, of course, we'll continue. Lord willing. Psalm 30. Let's read from the ESV since we all have copies. Psalm 30. A Psalm of David. A song at the dedication of the temple. If you will, read with me. I will extol you, O Jehovah, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Jehovah, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Jehovah, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to Jehovah, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity... 
I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Jehovah, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Jehovah, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Jehovah, and be merciful to me. O Jehovah, be my helper. You have turned me from for me from mourning. That's hard to say. Sorry. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Jehovah, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Psalm 30, another short psalm. Let's start with the beginning of this. All right, let's read this first bit. A psalm of David in ESV, a song at the dedication of the temple. I want you to think about that for a second. And now, what's, from just a plain historical standpoint, what's weird about a song of David and the dedication of the temple? What? Right. Right. David was dead when the psalm, when, right? David was dead when the temple was dedicated because Solomon built the temple. Okay, so what's going on here? So it's a, if we look at our different translations, right? We say it's a psalm of David, at least in the ESV, psalm of David. A song at the dedication of the temple. Or, if we look to the KGV, a psalm and a song at the dedication of the house of David. So there's some ambiguity there. All right, doesn't say temple there. Look at the Net Bible. A song, excuse me, a psalm, a song used at the dedication of the temple by David. And psalm for altar, song for the dedication of the house for David. Yes, Chip, what were you going to say? Oh, NIV says pal- uh, as a footnote it says palace. In the text it says. Uh, Could be a palace. Because the house could be more than one thing. Right? It could be David's palace. Uh, If it was, all right, it's a psalm of David, all right, likely. That seems to be the case. If it was used at the dedication, then what you've got is David writing the psalm, and then they use it later at the dedication in the temple. And so when the psalms are collected, they wrote as the superscription. This is a psalm of David, and it was used at the dedication of the temple. And so, there's nothing, there's nothing really squirrely there. It's just kind of odd when you read dedication of the temple and David. Oh, he wasn't there because God didn't allow him to build it. Or you could go with the alternative that you've got in Chip's note, which is at the palace. Now, how does it great? You know, how does it affect the meaning of this particular psalm? Really, not at all. And it actually strikes me as a, as a. I don't know why exactly you would use this one as a dedicatory psalm for a temple or even a house, because if we read the context, it's not really about a house. But anyway, they didn't ask me, so it doesn't really matter what I, what I think. They have been anticipating. You could, but here's my question. When we read the psalm, 
What is it about it? What is what about it says temple dedication or palace dedication? All right. So we want to, as we read this, we want to think about what is the historical circumstance here. What is what is David singing about in this particular case? All right. Let's look at the contents of the psalm and try to figure that out. Let's focus right now on the first two verses, because I think we can start to get a feeling for the context on those. And so I want you to take uh, a little bit of time, a minute or so, a minute and a half, and I want you to read all the translations, and then we will discuss. All right, go ahead. Verses 1 and 2. Okay, so here's my question. What has God done, and what was the problem? There were lots of enemies. There are enemies? All right. Seems too personal to be a dedicatory psalm. It's strange. It's, it, this is a very personal psalm. Yeah. What's that? Could be. Or, just later on, they just like, you know, we're going to use this for dedication of the temple. You know? yeah. Is it possible that um, when it says house, you know, the word you're thinking of is like dynasty? Or, I don't know. Hmm. That's a good idea. Could it mean dynasty as opposed to physical houses and palace or temple? I don't know. I didn't actually see anybody commenting on that as an option. It's an intriguing one, though. Um, I wonder if it's because the particular word for house used, or it's just they didn't think about it. So I don't know. It's uh, intriguing, though. Jennifer said they used it because everybody liked the tune. <laughs> that could totally be it. So. <laughs> because maybe they like the tune. Um, could totally be. I mean, it's a great song. So. <laughs> totally could. There's no reason why not. Yeah. So David's talking about, you know, God saving from his enemies, healed him, his soul healed him. Don't we also refer to our bodies as a temple? Yes. So is he maybe referring to that he's, that's a dedication of his body, himself? My only question for that, because that would totally make sense from a New Testament perspective, does the Old Testament talk about the body as a temple? And I don't know. Um, I don't. Nothing comes to my brain immediately on that. Could be. Totally could be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
That's that's true. And there's parts in this that you could look at and go, resurrection? If you apply it to Christ, maybe, but not yet. Yeah? Didn't David put aside a numerous amount of supplies to be able to build the temple? He did. Just not be his dedication of why he was doing that work? Could be. The question would be, though, what do we see in the psalm in terms of its own context? Is it a, oh, after we read the psalm, we go, yes, this totally makes sense as a dedicatory one? Or if it's a, this isn't about that, at least not in an obvious way. So, but that is a good point. Yeah. He did, he did prepare for Solomon and his building. So, first one clearly about God, right? Why? Because of the second one, right? He was healed. Now, usually when we think about David, Psalms, and enemies, normally what we think of is something like, okay, he's fighting the Philistines and he needs help. Or, he's fighting Saul and he needs help, right? This is something that happens very commonly. I don't think that's what this is, all right? Because, once again, look at verse 2. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. All right? So, if it's a battle context, it could be a wound. Or it could simply be a sickness that David goes through. All right? And so, this isn't a, I'm in a battle and my enemies are surrounding me. It's, I'm physically hurt in some way. That seems to be the context here. What's that? Now, in the, now, where, now, if this is the case, let's just go with the sickness. If, you, if this is the case, what's the connection then between that and David's enemies? Wound, obviously, that's, that's obvious. But even if it's just sickness, what would be the connection? That's a really good time to attack your enemy. It, it is. And if David is a thorn in your side, as he was, then another king hearing about David on his deathbed, yes, you know, you're like, Fantastic. Um, let's, let's go get him, right? Or as soon as he's dead, we're going to go in because there's going to be a change of power and all that kind of stuff. So uh, still, even if it's just sickness, even if this is David when he is really old, all right, and just trying to, to, to deal with it, you know, the illnesses of ages, aging, it could be simply that. Yeah. Could this song be referring to his hurt or sickness, whatever, could it refer to his... Uh, the sin that he's most known for? It could be, right? From a, the question that we do there is, okay, when we read more of the psalm, what's the context? It's the same problem with dedication or, or, or even that, or even enemies, all right? Let's read the rest of the psalm and see if that's it. I tend to think it's just physical, physical health here. Could be a wound, could simply be sickness, but, but we'll see. Now, what's the difference between drawing someone up and lifting me up? What's the image in your head that you get different, that's that different there? Like one is you're drawing them up, and the one's like you're helping them do it. Okay, so Elliot's on the ground, and I'm, if I'm nice, 
right? I might, am I drawing him up? Or am I, if I, am I lifting him up? But drawing up seems like picking up from somewhere and lifting up seems to like exalt. Okay, lifting up could be, we're on the same level and you exalt, okay? Think of drawing up here and in the context of the next verse, think of drawing up as, because uh, this word is often used, drawing water from a well, all right? Was that you just said? That's relevant for the next verse. And so everybody, read the next verse and spend a little time with it and think about it. None of these say draw. Yeah, yeah, for you have drawn me up, ESV. That was lifted me up, KJV. This is back to uh, verse 1. Net, you have lifted me up. Or in altar, verse 2, you drew me up. Yeah. So verse, uh, the, the note about Sheol in the pit. Read that for a second. Okay, so what is what does Sheol mean? Place of the dead. The grave, right? It's not an individual grave. This is a collective a collective place. Depending on your translation, of course you have these, but depending on your translation where you see Sheol, Sheol, that's just the Hebrew word, Sheol. Um, is translated differently depending on what ver what translation you use. The KJV is sometimes hell, it is sometimes grave, it is sometimes Sheol. The Net Bible has a lot of different variation. Um, I think the ESV, if I recall correctly, normally just does it as Sheol, which I prefer, um, simply because that means you have to think about it and just which one it's talking about. All right, so it's it's a it's. It's where you go when you die. Now, you don't go to Sheol when you're not dead. All right? Just like you don't put people in a grave, right, when they're, when they're not dead. What's well, it paralleled to here? All right? Hebrew parallelism. You have often two things set side by side. What's, what is the parallel to Sheol here? Pit. Pit. So this is where that image of drawn up like a bucket of water makes a lot of sense. All right, because the image is David's falling into the pit of death. All right, Sheol is down. Right, because when you bury people, you generally bury them down. All right, so he's going down into the pit, but God, all right, God drew him up out of the pit, just short of death. All right, and if you read the first half, you might go, oh, "Wait, he actually died." And was rose from the dead, All right? You brought my soul up, my soul from Sheol, or you has brought me up, my soul from the grave, or you pulled me up from Sheol, or Lord, you brought me up from Sheol. But you read the second one, all right? 
You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Oh, sounds resurrecty. KJV, thou hast kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Or in the Net Bible, you rescued me from among those descending to the grave. So people descending to the grave, God snatched and lifted him out of the pit before he actually went there. Or an altar gave me life from those who go down to the pit. So the idea here is David was almost dead. I think that's the image. He was really almost dead. Whatever this was, whatever illness, whatever wound he had, close to death. But God pulled him out of the the pit. In this case, the pit just means Sheol. It's a generic word for pit, but sometimes you'll see it where it parallels Sheol, so you go, okay, well, it's just another name for Sheol. Any questions or thoughts on that? David is a type of Christ. All right. You read this as Jesus, and yes, that's exactly what God did for Jesus. Right? Did God save Jesus from the pit, from Sheol? Yeah, he, he absolutely did. And so you could look at this typologically as yes, this is Christ being raised from the dead. Certainly. David himself? Don't think so. But yeah, you certainly could read it that way. Let's think about verse 4. Read about that in the different translations and let's talk about it. At this point, there's a shift. What's our shift? It's not I. It's you, right? He was about to die. God saved him. Now you, all right? You, O his saints, all right? O, O ye saints of his, all right? Sing praises to the Lord and give thanks to His holy name. Right? Most of the translations, are, you know, they're different, but mean, this, mean the same thing, I think, in this case. But there's that important shift, and the shift continues in the next few verses. All right, so spend some time reading verse five.
when I read this, I see a very I see a difference, especially in the first part between the ESV and the others. Do you see it? Now, whenever they versified this, why they did not break these into two different verses, I don't know. But still, what do you see? What's the difference? So all of them go with the same basic idea in the first one. His, for his anger is but for a moment. All right? Now God, being powerful, momentary anger, major problem. Right? His anger can be momentary and it be a major problem. However, there's the second clause. All right? Anger for a moment, favor for a lifetime. Now, if you take this as the meaning, all right, it's both are very consistent with biblical theology. What would be the meaning in this case? Somebody explain it in different words. And are there any scriptures you would tie this to? context of discipline, whether we're thinking of discipline of the nation of Israel as a whole or even discipline in the context of like the book of Hebrews, God's discipline. Right? Or your discipline as a, as a parent. Yeah? Jesus says this is a new covenant. He inaugurates the new covenant in his blood. There's a moment in Calvary and then the millennium. Yes. Yeah. Theologically speaking, all right, certainly true, all right. God's wrath was extremely powerful for that moment, all right, when Christ was crucified. His wrath poured out on Christ. What are the effects of that? Grace for forever, all right. Grace forever. Now, what about discipline? That's a good point. I'm glad you pointed that out. All right. When you're disciplining a child, or when God is disciplining you, all right, is it, oh, you did something you should not have done, so therefore, punishment for the rest of your life? It can be, but generally speaking, that's not the idea, right? When you discipline a child, your hope is you can discipline quickly and have it over with, and then, goodness, after that, right? Same with us. God's discipline against us is often momentary. But the fruit? Long. All right? In this case, all right, Israel. Sometimes God's wrath was very short. Sometimes it was very long. All right? But ultimately, in the end, all of that was a preparation for the redemption of his people, right? Long-term 
goodness. God's wrath can be short and it can be strong, but right, God holds vengeance against a person, but for generations and generations, grace is that basic idea. And so for here, in the ESV, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. You get disciplined. All right? And you'll see some things in here that is, is, this, is, is David actually talking about God's discipline against him for something? Now, if you go with the others, for his anger endureth but a moment, in his, in his favor is life, KJV. And you'll see that in the others. And the question is really purely contextual. And so if you think about the context of this, all right, the context of this is David's physical life being saved. And so contextually, some of them are going, in his favor, God's favor is life. In other words, David is saying, I survived. Why did I survive? Because of God's favor, right? Or you take the temporal thing and you go, this whole verse, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. That's clearly a short-term sadness. Joy comes in the morning. And so you take that shorter, closer context and go, no, like the ESV, and go, favor is for a lifetime after anger for a short moment. What were you going to say, Bill? Maybe he viewed, if this is an illness, that God gave it to him. Because Could have. Thing, you know, as a rebuke. And he was like, yeah, it, it happened for a moment, but then he restored me. Mm-hmm. Yep. Could very well be. The question is, once again, in this psalm, what else are we going to see? All right. Are we talking about God or or us or? His love for us. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the discipline against us by God is not. It's not punitive, I'm, I want to punish you. It's, you're right, it's love. It's temporary, accomplish the goal he wants to accomplish. And then, it's over. His wrath is just for a moment. Yeah. It's almost 10.45, so let's break there. Think about this today, all right? Whenever we think about the Psalms, we should think of them as in relation to our prayer life. We should think of them and how we worship. All right. Consider, all right. Consider how God's anger was momentarily put upon Christ. And because of that, grace forevermore. Consider how you ought to extol God for that and do it when we go next door before we go next door um, you know a few weeks ago you know Mike mentioned maybe let's tone down the noise a little bit before worship and after as Frank plays talk to to Bill and Edward about this all right let's let's do this all right Frank puts a lot of work into practicing, and you know what? Some of us want to listen to him. Also, in the quiet time, be meditative. Pray, all right? If you need to talk to somebody, fine, whisper. Keep it quiet. If you really want to strike up a conversation, great. 
take it outside, right? Because right after that, right after worship, we'll be coming over here. And so use that time, all right? Not just a negative of be quiet, but use that as a positive of as we're preparing for worship. All right? Listen to the beautiful music. Spend time in prayer. And afterwards, if you need to, take the time in the quiet and pray. Okay? All right. Well, let's be dismissed. Um, Catherine Hale, will you please pray for us?